about a year ago, I did a sermon series called Advice from Above. And during that sermon series, we talked about how kind of to figure out God's will and how to stay patient in seeking what God wants. And, and during that time, I began to pray kind of out of that for uh, a free car. And uh, there's, let me explain, I don't think everybody should just pray for a, a free car. Uh, that's, I mean, especially not like a Ferrari. But uh, I, I, we have one car, me and my wife, and I really like walking everywhere in, in the city. Uh, we live right here in Wilsonville now. I really uh, didn't feel a need for another car for a long time, but uh, our church had really a need for another car, and I figured I was as good a guy as anybody. We needed a, a car with a trailer hitch so that we could pull the trailer uh, when when Graham isn't uh, around to do it, and, and I needed a car that I could haul stuff from the property, and so I just set to praying, and uh, it, it's a year later now, and last Thursday, we got a free car from somebody. It, it was crazy. We never mentioned it to this person. Uh, in fact, they sent Brent a text message and said, hey, do you guys want a car? And I, I, I was like celebrating, and they had no idea. It was like the biggest answer to prayer for me. And, and it is a minivan, which I never knew this, but Brent will tell you, I've always wanted a minivan, and I never knew it. It's like there's so many things you can do with a minivan. I'm telling you, sell your beautiful cars and, and get a minivan. It's the way to go. I mean, there's so much room in the back, and your dog can, like, play back there. So this, this prayer but it was, was something that was important because I saw a need, and it was a God need, and it wasn't necessarily Chad just wanted a minivan or a truck or whatever it might be. I really felt like it was something that that God needed, and, and I thought he would provide it. And so I've been praying for a year, and, and the people who know me and are, are part of really making Sundays happen know that during the last couple months, uh, my faith in that kind of started to waver. And I, I began to think like, oh, well, I could just spend a little bit of money on a truck. Maybe, you know, the free one's not coming. And I actually test drove a, a, a truck, and I was ready to, to do it until I parked and it started smoking. And, uh, and so I decided that wasn't a good idea. And, and so uh, my, my faith in just really something that a year ago I thought God wanted me to ask for and continue to ask for and be faithful in, started to waver. And that happens sometimes. And the story we look at today is a story that speaks to a wavering faith in just about every way. I mean, uh, the man Joseph that we're going to kind of look at and think about together this morning is a guy who had every single reason for his faith in God and what God had shown him and what God had promised him and, and, and really in who God was. He had absolutely every reason for that faith to waver and disappear and to just kind of chuck it out and say, I'm going to go a different direction. I'll, I'll take care of this myself, God. But he doesn't do that at all. And as we're going through this series, stories of old, and we are, we are, I'm telling you these Old Testament stories that are about faith, and we're looking at these guys who are in Hebrews chapter 11 in Scripture, and it talks about how, how they are really the picture of faith and we're we're kind of seeing these different sides of faith and what it means the story of joseph gives us a, another side of of that picture and the, and the side is what do you do when it just all seems to be going wrong i mean you can look at the life of of noah noah's ark we talked about that and and noah was a guy that we don't really see any major 
problems. You, you just kind of, there's a guy, he's living a righteous life. He's got a nice little family. God tells him there's going to be rain. So he builds a boat. Sure, it took perseverance, but it's not like every day he was dealing with something that was difficult and hard and he had to keep going. He just kind of went through the steps God told him to and everything turns out right for Noah. Same thing with Abraham, who we looked at last week. And maybe you left that story last week of Abraham going, this guy's telling lies. He laughed at God, but yet God continued to bless him. And isn't that the truth? I mean, God just blesses the guy over and over and over again, and, and it doesn't seem like major hardship comes. He couldn't have a child, but, but God promised it, and it just kind of the story went as planned the whole time. The story of Joseph is totally different. This is how it begins. Now, now Israel, that's Joseph's dad, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And this is the part of the story, you know, it says that he made him an ornate robe. He makes him this thing that I always picture as a really colorful bathrobe. Uh, I'm not sure why that's what I picture, but whenever I have a bathrobe on, it's like I feel kind of like Joseph. And so uh, Joseph's dad makes him this just beautiful robe. And all of a sudden, we see that his brothers hated him. Now, just just think about the time in which they live. It's not like today where we go to the store and your dad can purchase you a nice jacket and then, you know, at the next birthday he can buy his other son a nice jacket. I mean, we're talking to make like a nice bathrobe. That's a big, big deal. I mean, you, you have to go out. You have to find the material for that, especially to make it colorful, right? Because you're not just going out and getting a sheep and taking its wool and, and then producing something if you're going to make an ornate robe then you're gonna have to find the dye to do that it's going to have to be weaved or woven however you say that and and it's a big long process and and i watched in preparation for this sermon and noticed all of the inaccuracies joseph king of dreams by dreamworks have you ever seen that cartoon a lot when you're about to tell a story to a congregation at church and you're watching the kids version like wrong wrong Wait a minute, I don't remember that. I'm, i got to read that again, but it wasn't there. Uh, anyway, and, and so in that, I think they do a really good job of capturing kind of this robe moment. All of his brothers are shirtless as they're walking around. The whole movie, they're shirtless, big buff guys. And, and they're walking around taking care of the sheep with, with hardly any clothes on. And here's Joseph walking around in his big kingly robe. And I think that's probably more accurate to what the story would have been like than what we sometimes picture. I mean, these guys will get new clothes, you know, maybe a couple times in their their adult lives. And and Joseph, for his birthday or whatever, gets this beautiful kingly robe. And the brothers hate hate him because of the favoritism. And then... Joseph, I don't know if he was a glutton for punishment or what, but but he sees his brothers not working as hard. And so he goes up to his dad and he's like, hey, dad, I saw Judah and all of them just hanging out when they were supposed to be taking care of the flock. And then you know what happens. Israel, his dad, he, he goes and he yells at the kids and they're like, there is no way that anybody could have known about that unless somebody told them. And Joseph, the idiot brother that we hate, is the most likely candidate until they figure it out and they hate him even more and then and i don't know this is i don't know what he's thinking joseph has dreams like hey everyone i had a dream (laughs) sometimes you should just keep your mouth shut this is what he says we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it sure 
Um, yes. If anybody said that to me, I'm like, dude, you're an idiot. I don't like you. I didn't like you before. Now you're really not liked anymore. But but think about the situation they're in. The dad is already playing favorites, right? He's got this giant kingly coat on, and he walks up to his brothers and says, I had a dream that you were bowing down to me, and they understand full well what he's saying. And they say, really? We're going to bow down to you? Is that what you're telling us? And then... He didn't learn his lesson. He says, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. He says, my brothers, my parents, someday are going to bow down to me according to these dreams. So the tension in the story elevates. And you can see why it elevates, right? I mean, it's easy to hate these brothers because of what happens next, if you know the story. But you can kind of feel the tension and the hatred rising as you read about it in Genesis 38. And, and so the brothers hate him. I mean, they hate him. Dad loves him. He doesn't love us. He doesn't work. We're out here working hard all day. He has that robe on all the time like he's ruling over us. He's talking about these crazy dreams where we bow down to him. But history tells us that we're older than him and he should be bowing down to us. What kind of arrogance is that? And so one day they're out and they're dealing with the flocks. And dad says, hey, Joseph, I need you to go out and I need you to take some supplies to your brothers. And so while they're coming, while he's coming, they see him. And I'm guessing they see him because of the really bright coat, right? I mean, everybody else is shirtless, according to the cartoon. And all of a sudden, you see this glowing figure off in the distance. And it's like, that's Joseph in his golden jacket. And Joseph is walking up. And as, as guys will do when they're sitting around unchecked, they, they come up with a plan. And the plan is, let's kill him. Let's kill him. And one of the brothers, Reuben, thankfully in this story, says, hey, we don't want to spill our brother's blood. That's a really bad idea. I mean, any murder is always a really bad idea, right? And, and so Reuben in this moment, you know, he, he, he says, I'm not going to give him the peer pressure. And he says, hey, let's, let's not kill the guy. In, in fact, let's instead throw him in this cistern over here or this well over here. And the plan is that he will come back and later they will get him out of that. That's his plan, Reuben. And he will take him to his dad and everything will be okay. It will just be kind of this bad moment where the brothers got a little too excited and boys were being boys and things were going downhill, right? So the brothers throw him in the cistern and they're going to leave him there to die. Reuben's going to come back. But then, as fate would have it, they go and have lunch. And I don't know where Reuben's eating in this story. It's an interesting part. But Reuben apparently isn't eating with the rest of the brothers because the rest of the brothers, nine of them, are sitting there and they see some Ishmaelites coming. They see this group of people who are not their people and they can tell, hey, these are slave traders. They say, wow, if we leave our brother in the well to die... We don't get anything out of it. I mean, we don't have to deal with the guy anymore. But we don't get any payment. This isn't going to help us in the long run. And so they say, here's the idea. This is what we're going to do. Start whispering about it, I'm sure. We'll get him out of the well. We'll take him to the slave traders. We'll make a little money. We get rid of Joseph. And we get a little bit of extra cash. And so this is what they do. Reuben comes back and, and he sees that his brother's not there. He's sad about it. They, they come up with an even greater plan and they dip his coat in blood and they say, hey, this is the only coat of its kind, Dad. Uh, look, your son must have died. And Jacob, Israel, uh, both names, he got two names. He just cries out, my son has been devoured by wild animals. 
I want you to think about Joseph. And, and uh, again, the cartoon does a really good job at certain points. And, uh, and, and one of the things that it does really well is just the culture shock that would have surrounded Joseph. Think about him, favorite child, having dreams of people bowing down to him. And now, handcuffed, he is taken in to the greatest kingdom on earth at the time, and that is the kingdom of Egypt, the nation of Egypt. And he comes in as a person who is now being put on display in order to be sold. A man named Potiphar, who was the captain of the army, comes up and he buys Joseph and he takes him into his house. And this is what we see about Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. I think Joseph, I mean, this is this is a cool moment, right? I mean, he's got to learn to work because his brothers were doing most of that. He really has to learn to be a slave. And that's, a, I mean, that's something that, that we can't even fathom or imagine as people who are free. And now he ha- doesn't have any freedom. He's being told what to do, but he excels at it. He overcomes the mourning of being away from home and family and the difficulties of knowing that his brothers hated him so much that they would sell him into slavery. And he figures out how to interact with people who speak a different language than him. And he totally excels in it. And his future is once again looking bright. I mean, you have one of the highest in command people in all of Egypt who loves you. And he said, you rule my house. All I'm going to worry about is the food I eat. You take care of everything else. Joseph has to be feeling good. And then the Bible tells us that Joseph was a buff and handsome man. Those are my words, but that's what it says. He was a buff and handsome guy. And Potiphar's wife takes notice of this. Says, I want him for myself. She comes on to Joseph. Joseph turns her down. She comes on to Joseph again. Joseph turns her down. She comes on to Joseph again. Joseph turns her down. Then she calls Joseph into her bedroom. I'm sure she wasn't very, wearing very many clothes. She, he comes in there. He sees what's happening. He recognizes the moment. He goes to run away. And he, she grabs his, his clothes, ripping them off. And he takes off fleeing from her. And she is angry. She is very angry because the slave boy has disobeyed her. She was probably a very powerful woman that didn't have the word no said to her very often. And she's angry. And so she claims that Joseph tried to rape her. And Potiphar is angry. I mean, Potiphar, I'm sure, I mean, you put yourself in Potiphar's shoes. Somebody was trying to hurt somebody you loved in that way. He is, he is just hot. He, he probably wanted to kill Joseph, but because he had a relationship with Joseph and he knew Joseph and Joseph had been so uh, blessed in, in serving him, he throws Joseph into jail. So Joseph goes to jail, and and this is what we read. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Do you see a theme? Joseph remains faithful in his work, and God continues to bless him. And something else happens there in that prison. 
Something very important to the story. Two men, for whatever reason, are thrown into jail. And it's interesting in this part of the story, kind of all this story, that that Joseph's life is so impacted by something that that isn't even written in Scripture, and Joseph probably has no idea what happened. Uh, He probably knew, but he probably didn't at first. The cupbearer and the chief baker for Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt, are thrown into jail. You'd love to know those circumstances, right? I mean, why all of a sudden are two really prominent officials in this land now thrown into jail? But we don't know that. But they end up in jail. And they have dreams, both of them. The cupbearer's dream is this. In my dream, this is what he says to Joseph, I saw a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. Joseph said, God can interpret that dream. I don't do it. And he said, here's, here's what it means. God's telling me this is what it means. He says, in three days, you will be lifted back up in your place of importance. You will be the one. It's a weird job to have be important, but, but you'll taste the wine to make sure it doesn't have poison in it for Pharaoh once again. And the cupbearer's like, sweet, I get my job back. And, and, and three days later, we find out that it happens. Now, the other guy, the chief baker, is like, cool. I had a dream too. This is awesome. I mean, that guy's dream meant something really great, and I'm, I want to know what my dream means. I mean, what is it that my dream means? And this is what it says. He says, on my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Joseph looks at him and he says, in three days, Pharaoh will, Bible says, lift off your head. So I don't know, whatever that means, uh, I'm thinking chopped would have been a better translation. Your head will be chopped off and then they will impale you. Not exactly what I'm sure the chief baker wanted here. He must have put something really bad in the bread. I mean, <laughs> what do you, what, I mean, like, did he burn stuff or what? I don't know, but, but that's really bad, right? And, and so here's, here's what happens. Joseph looks at the cupbearer and he says, hey, when you get back into importance, I need you to tell Pharaoh about me. I'm innocent. I need you to tell him about how I interpreted your dream. I need you to get me out of this prison. But it doesn't happen. The Bible tells us that he sat in the silence of that prison for two years. Two years. Joseph sits there. And you have to wonder the thoughts that are going through his head. I mean, what if that guy would have told somebody, I can't believe I'm here. Maybe I should have handled it different. Where is God in all of this? Why is God allowing for this to happen to me? Didn't I have dreams? It wasn't... Weren't those dreams prophetic? They seemed to be like God was telling me that I would do something important someday. But so far all I've done is succeed in being a slave and a prisoner. The doubts had to creep into Joseph's mind. And then, after two years, Pharaoh has two dreams. And the cupbearer says, Oh yeah, by the way, I forgot about something. Might have been important. Don't kill me. I don't want to end up like the chief baker. Um, but I met this guy when I was in prison down there. It wasn't your fault that you put me there. I mean, you know, so <laughs> it was a good idea. I needed those three days in prison. And Pharaoh, but uh, please forgive me. There's this guy in prison who can interpret dreams. 
Pharaoh says, well, none of my magicians, none of the magic people around here seem to be able to tell me what it means. And so they call Joseph out of prison, and, and he tells him his dreams. He says, he was standing by the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. And then he has another dream. Here it is. He tells this to Joseph. Two, seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. So he tells this to Joseph, and, and Joseph's response just seems so like good and biblical. But I just can't. It would have been a scary moment. He looks at Joseph and said, you can interpret this, right? And Joseph said, I can't do it. But God can I, that takes some guts. I mean, you're the most powerful man in the world. I'm like, yes, I'll, uh, I'm taking a guess. Uh, yeah, I can interpret anything you want. Get me out of prison. Don't impale me. Just let it, don't lift my head off. Uh, just, uh, yes. But he says, no, I can't do it. But God will give you the interpretation. And here it is. You'll have seven years of famine. I mean, of, of not a famine. You'll have seven years of really good, prosperous uh, growth in your land. And then after that, you will have seven years of famine. And Joseph says, you need to find a guy and you need to make sure that he puts all of the people in Egypt on a very strict regime and they need to make sure that they are saving grain for those first seven years. And if you will do this, then during that next seven years, your people will all be saved. And so get a really smart guy and make that happen. And, and here's what happens. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command and people shouted before him, make way. Thirteen years before this moment, Joseph is being sold into slavery. Two years before this moment, he is, he is put into prison. And just hours before this, the guy is sitting in a dark dungeon prison cell like the one on Aladdin, not the jails we have today. He's sitting there. And now, I mean, just the contrast is so striking. He is riding down the road and the people are calling out, make way for Joseph because he is now second in command of the most powerful nation on earth. I mean, this is like a prisoner being vice president of our country in a matter of hours. It's impossible. That's what you need to hear. It is absolutely impossible. And as Joseph is sitting there in the jail cell, thinking about his dreams and what he thinks God has promised to him, he must be thinking like, okay, maybe there's a way. Like, maybe I'll get released and I'll work really hard again as a slave. And maybe that guy will be a good official and he'll write my name. And maybe, you know, in like 30 years, then if I work really hard, then maybe I'll be elevated here and God can maybe perhaps kind of do something really cool. Like six hours later, the guy is in the parade and everybody is bowing down to him because he's second in command. It is one of the most powerful statements of God's ability to work not within our logic, not within our own kind of thoughts and means and ways that we normally do things, but simply on his own accord. He gives Pharaoh two dreams, and Joseph, through the power of God, interprets them, and all of a sudden, he 
is in control of everybody except for Pharaoh. So here's what happens. The plan works. They're saving grain. Things are going really good. They got storehouses going up. They're putting grain away like crazy. They're saving as much as they possibly can because they know it's coming and they know that it's going to go bad and then it does go bad. And there's a famine throughout the whole entire land, including in the land of Canaan where Joseph was originally from and his family starts to starve to death, probably more literally than when I haven't had lunch. And so the family starts to starve to death. The dad says, hey, I heard there's uh, grain down in Egypt. Can you kids go down there? I'm old. I need my sons to go down there and buy grain. And they come up. I mean, just just picture the moment. And there's Joseph marking off. You have your grain. You have your grain. You have your grain. How many in your family? And his brothers come up and they bow before him asking for grain. Isn't that a crazy moment? I mean, just... Can you, just the dream, like, oh, this is what I thought God said, but here I am. And they bow down before him. And I, I don't know what jo- Joseph's reasoning is, what his thinking is. Uh, I'm sure he's just so startled. I, I read back into the story and what takes place next, and I want to kind of find some meaning in it. I want to find some, like, thought. Did, was Joseph being wise? Was he being vindictive? Was he angry? What's the reason for what he does next? I don't know. I think if I just maybe put myself in Joseph's shoes, he's just shocked. And he's thinking, like, oh, boy, I'm not going to tell him who I am. I don't know what to do. And so he looks at him. He's like, you're spies. No, we're not spies. We just need some grain. Sorry, we're not spies. He says, no, you are absolutely spies. You have come to our land to see where we are weak so that you can come and attack us. And he has all of his brothers thrown into jail. Now they tell him about his, in the midst of this whole ordeal, they tell him because he asks about the rest of the family. And it turns out Joseph has a younger brother and he has a dad that is still living. Now, here's the thing you need to know about these brothers. They are all half-brothers except for this younger brother whose name was Benjamin who hadn't come along for the trip. That was Joseph's full brother. And so Joseph throws them all in jail. They're probably panicking. I just can't imagine the moment. And he says, here's the plan. I'm going to take one of you, Simeon, and I'm going to throw you into jail and and I will let the rest of you go back. And if you bring this younger brother, Benjamin, back with you, then I will let this brother go and you can come back and get some more grain. The brothers go home. They tell their dad what's happened. He's sad, of course. He has another son who has gone from his life. And then they start to eat and they eat and then the grain goes away and they start to starve to death again. And Israel says to his sons, go buy more grain. They say, not happening. You weren't there. I was thrown in jail. I was treated like a spy. They already took one brother. We're not going back and having another brother. There's no way we're going unless you let Benjamin go. And he says, and again playing favorites, he says, you already, one of my sons, one of my important sons already died. This is in essence what he's saying. One of my important sons already died. And I'm not going to have my other important son die because it's by my favorite wife and they say sorry dad i don't care if we all starve to death there is absolutely no way we are going back there and dealing with that number two in command in all of egypt the way he treated us last time we are not going back unless benjamin comes and reuben makes a promise he says i absolutely will bring him back if i don't it's on my head forevermore jewish people take that stuff very seriously 
And so they go back. Israel says, take gifts with you. And they, they go back and they meet with Joseph again. Joseph sees his brother. He's, he's just impacted by it. And, and then he says, hey, come and dine at my house tonight. And, and here's the other part. I just left this out. But, but on the first trip, he had put their silver that they were going to pay for the grain back into their sacks. So they're like, he thinks we stole our silver back. And now he's inviting us to his house. And this is going to go bad. And so they're like, hey, we just want you to know the silver was in our packs. He's like, don't worry about it. Come eat. With me, and so they're all sitting around and eating. It's it's an odd little moment. Uh, it's it's a funny moment because it says that that Benjamin gets like five times as much food as the rest of them. I just I, I it's just funny to me and and kind of what I picture. Do you know the the uh, the Christmas story movie? Is that what it's called? And the little uh, Ralphie. Do you know Ralphie and the Christmas? That's what the movie's called. Yeah, he has like the giant plate of mashed potatoes. And he's eating it like a pig. Do you, maybe anybody know? Uh, anyway, so that's what I, I just picture Benjamin with like this plate of mashed potatoes and everybody else is like eating peas uh, at this feast with Joseph and his brothers. But Joseph has not revealed himself yet. And so they eat and they go home and Joseph says to one of his attendants, he says, hey, put my cup, the one that I drink out of, into Benjamin's sack when they're leaving. And so they do, and, and, and they all leave. They don't know this has happened. And he says to his attendant, chase him down and say that one of them stole from me. And so they chase him down, and, and they get there, and they say, hey, one of you stole from me. And one of the brothers is like, uh, if anybody stole from you, you can kill us right now. Nobody has taken anything from you. And they begin to open the sacks that they're carrying one by one, and out comes the silver goblet, if you will, that is Joseph's from the sack of Benjamin. The brothers are thinking, this is bad. Benjamin's probably thinking, this is bad. They're all thinking, this is bad. And they say, hey, you can take us. Take me. Judah specifically says, take me. You cannot let this happen to our dad again. He loves this son. Just take me. Arrest me. And Joseph loses it. He breaks down because I think in that moment he sees that his brothers are changed. They've grown. They've matured. It's different. He understands that it's not the same guys that maybe in these moments he's trying to punish or get back at or whatever. He dismisses all the Egyptians. He breaks down and he cries in front of his brothers and he says, look, I'm your brother. And they say, uh-oh. <laughs> hey, we dropped you in that well, and we look it all over for you for the last 20 years. Where you been, man? Um, and Joseph says, hey, it's forgiven. Don't worry about it. And so, the, long story short, he says, hey, go get dad, bring him back to our land. You guys can all live here. The dad comes back to the land. They get nice land from, from the Egyptians because they are shepherds and, and nobody wants to live by the shepherds. And so they, they send these guys out and they have great land and they have all the resources and they are taken care of. And the story tells us that, that Israel blesses Joseph's children and then blesses his children and then he dies. And it's very fascinating what happens next. The brothers go he was just being nice to us because of our dad and so they they come up with a lie they say hey let's tell him let's tell joseph that our dad made a, uh, said hey joseph you need to promise that you wouldn't harm us and so they tell joseph that and they fall down before him like we'll be your servants but this is what dad promised and joseph looks at them and he says one of the great things in all of scripture 
And this is the thing that you need to hear and you need to understand. And it's really what Joseph understood about life and about God that made really his ministry and his calling and his faith possible. He looks down at him and he says, Look, I've forgiven you. And here's the reason. Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The truth is, this one verse in the midst of this 14 chapter story in the Bible speaks to all of us in our situations in life. We all deal with difficult things, hurts and pains and struggles. And when we begin to look at it like Joseph and say, look, God will use these things for good, for His glory, for the saving of people, then it changes the way in which we do everything in our lives. There are several things we need to learn from this story. It's just it's one of those stories that just seriously it's like it's like you can't read a section of it without without learning something and and the first thing I think that that we learn is is how to handle favoritism right and and you see in these brothers that they handle favoritism and not being favorited by their dad in in the complete wrong way but you also see in the person of Joseph that he handles being the favorite in the wrong way and and a lot of people deal with this as as children and 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 maybe you've grown up and you you thought that your brother or sister was your parents favorite and they might have been to be honest with you I won't sugarcoat it uh, and maybe you were the one who was the favorite and and so you've always kind of had this attitude towards your sibling like hey you know I had a dream that I was way cooler than you you and I just needed you to know that because dad and mom think it too and and in the story we see the complete wrong way to handle either being the favorite or not being the favorite and we look at this story and God uses it tremendously I mean he uses it to save the world as we know it in some ways but the truth is it wasn't handled by either party the way it should have and so I want I just want you because I know people you deal with this you know if you're a child and sometimes you deal with this if you're in the workplace, you have a boss who's you know, like without a doubt, he likes that other guy better than me. I'm not sure why. Or you're like, he likes me better than the other guy. I don't know. Well, I do know why. But uh, you know what I mean? And, and there's a right and wrong way to handle that. And it must both sides be handled with love and grace. We see the importance of this in the story of integrity and holiness. I mean, the fact that Joseph runs away from Potiphar's wife is an incredible moment. And it shows what his faith caused him to do as far as removing sin. A lot of us, we want to play with sin. We want to stand by it. We want to, we want to sit there and think, well, I can be this close. We, we want to flirt with Potiphar's wife. Uh, say, we'll, we'll never take the next step. We'll never give in just a little bit more. But, but I can stay right here and kind of look at it and be okay with it. But Joseph teaches us that true faith really results in a holiness that flees the temptations of life. It runs away from the things that we know God doesn't want us to do. It doesn't say, I'll kind of hang out here and hope that I don't give in to it. In this story, we see that our patience and our calling is very, very smart and very, very important, even when life hurts. I mean, Joseph goes well over a decade going, I think God has said this about me. And he's called me to this. But I see no way in which that's going to happen. In fact, it seems like I keep getting 
worse. I'm supposed to be moving towards ruling and reigning and doing something grand, and I've gone from favorite son to slave to prisoner. And it doesn't seem like I'm headed in the right direction at all. And here's what I see about most Christians that I know. Sometime when you first become a Christian, especially when you become a Christian at a young age, it's like God calls you to something. You think, I could do so much. I could do something great for God. And then you kind of don't see those things happen. You just, you're just like, well, it doesn't seem like I'm going to accomplish this or this. And, and over time what happens is you just kick it into overdrive. And, and you just think, well, I guess that, that dream's not going to come true. I guess that thing will never happen. And eventually you just give up and stop trying and you don't work to try to succeed at everything God has done and, and you slack and you're not like Joseph who's, who's turning his master's house in the prisoner ward's prison into something better because you're saying, God, I don't know how I'm going to get to that dream, but I'm going to serve you hard every day until you bring about the thing that you've called into my life. We have a great example of that right here. He stands up on stage every single week, and that's Brandon. And Brandon knows without a shadow of a doubt that God has called him to do, to do musical ministry in a full-time capacity. And yet, Brandon just celebrated his eighth anniversary at PetSmart and has very little time to prepare what we do here on Sunday mornings. And, and Brandon's known this for a long time, and it would be easy for him at some point to go, maybe that's not what God's called me to do. And maybe that's not it. I, I don't know. I, but Brandon continues to be like Joseph and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best at PetSmart. They like him there. And, and I'm going to do my best at church in the capacity that God has me in now. And I know that he'll bring that dream true. But too many people, just way too many people, just go, eh, I guess the big plans aren't going to succeed. I'm going to settle in. And I don't think that was Joseph ever. He could have sat there in prison and said, eh, whatever. You know, God didn't work it out. No big deal. He could have he could have been a slave that just said, yeah, you know, well, sure, whatever, I'll do that. But I'm not going to try to succeed. But he continued to press on and serve God. And at the end of his life, he could see how all of the difficulties made what God had called him to possible. Read this quote, if a man's work is of small importance, he can be prepared for it in a little while. But when he has a great mission to fulfill, it requires a long time to fit him for it. Let no one grow impatient in God's school, however slow the advancement may be. The longer time God takes with your training and the harder the discipline is, the richer your life when the work is finished. There's a modern day kind of interpretation of of, uh, the story of Joseph and it's called Hands Off is is its title. And it's uh, it's a little bit like, like... it's a Wonderful Life, which I know at least one person in our church hasn't seen, so I won't give away the ending of that today. It's only 50 years old. Um, you should be able to use it for an illustration, Karen Brace. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, uh, it, it's a little bit like that, and there's this scene in the story. And, and, and the story is this. There's like a divine being uh, who's talking to kind of like picture an angel, right? Uh, somebody kind of in a different realm. Uh, and and they're looking down on the story of Joseph. And, and in the story, what happens is they're looking down, and Joseph is sold to the slave owners. And the, during the night, Joseph escapes from his slave owners. And he's running away. He's about to clear camp. He's going to get away from the Ishmaelites. He's going to go back home. He's going to tell on his brothers everything's going to be great. And then a dog sees him and starts to bark. And so the story goes that the slave owners 
uh, the slave sellers, the, the, they, see, they hear the dog barking, and they go and get Joseph, and they bring him back, and the story continues on. And, and the guy that's up there talking to the divine being says, hey, let's just intercede with this story and kill the dog. Not my idea, you know, not what I would do. I'm a dog lover, but maybe you could have just got him a muzzle or something. But anyway, he says, let's, let's just kill the dog. Joseph gets away and the story is better. And the divine being shows him exactly what would happen. And, and, and as the story goes, Joseph never goes to Egypt. And Pharaoh never has his dream interpreted. And, and they never save any grain. And Egypt doesn't have any food for people once the famine starts. And eventually what the story ends with is Joseph's family line deceasing because they don't have any food to eat. And the point is pretty clear, right? And when we see it in, in God's perspective and God's way, it, it changes the way in which we view these things in life that we have to deal with. I mean, we look at these struggles and these hurts and these pains and we say, well, if these things weren't in my life, then I could really get to accomplishing God's work and call for what I am. But what we see in the story of Joseph and Joseph's words in, in Genesis fifty twenty is that It's not about avoiding those difficulties. It's about embracing those difficulties and saying, God is allowing this in order to turn me into what he wants me to be so that I can accomplish his goals. And the last thing that we really see in this story is is forgiveness. And uh, if Joseph doesn't forgive, if he kills his brothers, then the whole rest of the Bible is different because the 12 tribes of Israel are are no longer, 10 of them anyway. Uh, and, And here's the thing. I don't think you can fully forgive the way that you want to forgive until you learn to trust that God will work everything for your good if you love Him. In fact, that's what Romans 8.28 says. It says that exactly almost. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And the truth is, when we understand that God is using everything bad in our lives to make something better and good and to work in us and to fulfill His promises to us and to grow us into the people that He wants us to be, then it makes it much easier when we are wronged to say, you know what, you meant to do something bad, but I'm thankful for it because God has done something great through it. And that's the amazing part of this story is that Joseph understands Joseph understands Jesus maybe better than, than we understand Jesus. He didn't know about Jesus. He had no, rec- uh, no understanding of this guy that might come really and, and save the world. But when we look at Jesus, we can see all of these things that kind of happen in the life of Joseph, Joseph just, just kind of come out in a very clear and real way. I mean, here is Jesus. The God of the universe, he comes to earth and he lives this life. And and at the end of it, he is brutally murdered. And in the story of Jesus, it's like, we could be like, man, that's terrible. That's horrible. But Jesus knew he was doing it for a purpose. And in that purpose, he, he was able to save all of us who choose to give our lives to him. And now, even more than Joseph, we can look and say, in everything... God is working for my good because he proved it in the cross. I mean, he proved that the greatest disaster, the greatest evil could be used for the greatest good. And now I can look at my life and say, there is no way that God doesn't have my best interest in mind in the midst of everything bad. There is no way that God would let me go through something terrible if he didn't think it was going to benefit me in the long run. Hear me very clearly. God does not bring evil into your lives. He never has and he never will. But he does use that evil for your good if you are his follower. And we can't help 
but look at Jesus and what he did on the cross and say, I don't think God cares about me. I mean, look what he let happen. We have to look at it. And we have to say, the God of the universe loves me perfectly. He loves me infinitely. He loves me ultimately. And I know that because he came here and he died so that I could be saved from my sins. And if he did that, then definitely he isn't going to put me through something that's not going to benefit me and bless me in the long run. And so this morning, what I want you to understand and I want you to hear quite clearly is in the story of Joseph, we see the providence and the love of God coming forward despite the circumstances of life. And if we are going to learn anything from it, what we need to learn is that God loves us so much that no matter what happens to us, we can celebrate, we can rejoice, and we can continue to work towards the mission that He has called us to because we know that He is working it for our good. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank You for the story. It's my favorite, God. And uh, it's like one of my favorite in all of Scripture, Lord. And it shows Your mighty workings. And too often, God, I think that we... Um, we, we just devalue the work that you're doing. And, and we think, you know, if God was here and he was paying attention to us, then, then, he, then he would do something about this. But Lord, as we see in the story of Joseph, you are doing something about everything. You are working for our good if we love you, Lord. And let us remember that. I mean, let us not look at the, the trials and difficulties, the hurt, the pain, and the struggles of life and say, I can't believe God's not paying attention. But let us, God, understand that in those things, you are working for our betterment. And Lord, in this story, we I mean, we see at the end that there's this giant reconciliation between brothers even that never would have happened. Probably they would have died enemies, Lord, but you use circumstances to bring that reconciliation. And, and God, in this story, you use circumstances to to save the world. And so, Lord, when we go through death, we deal with the death of loved ones, and when we go through financial struggles, and we go through people treating us evil, God, really hurting us and coming at us and trying to tear us down or maybe even get rid of us, Lord, I pray that in all of it, we would remember that you are there and we would remain faithful to you and we would serve you hard. God, I pray for people in this room who have given up on their dreams. And I don't just mean their dreams like, I want to be a professional baseball player, Lord. But I mean their dreams for you. The ones that they had when they first gave their lives to you and thought, I could do this for the glory of God someday. And I pray that you bring those things back to them. And Lord, they keep working and striving to be there and be that someday for you. Uh, Let people not just dismiss because circumstances haven't gone the right direction what you've called them to, Lord. And I think that happens far too often. So just just change the heart of certain people in our congregation that have just given up on on doing mighty mighty things for you and for our world. And Lord, I, I just lastly pray for those people here who don't know you and Lord, whose circumstances and hurts and pains and difficulties have no purpose right now. And Lord, I, I pray that they would give their lives to you because they would recognize you as God and Savior. 
and they would look for a reason to have a way for their sins to be forgiven and to have eternal life. But I also pray, God, even in these moments, that they would be drawn towards a relationship with you because they want the hurt and the pain, the very thing that they're thinking of right now, God, to have some meaning and some purpose in their lives. Lord, I thank you that I can look back on everything I've gone through. Everything. And see how you worked it for my good. Lord, I am I am not Joseph, Lord, but my life and the way you've worked is not different. And so I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you. And I, I pray that every person here would, would know that meaning, God, um, for their lives. Because they would love you. And that's your promise, Lord. Help them to understand that your promise is not to make good of everything for, for everybody, but to make good of everything for for those that love you. And I pray that people would fall in love with you.